a love incomprehensible. Father, our hope is that tonight we would be motivated by that love, the love you've shown for us, the love that you've worked for us through Christ, so that together as a church we might be united in love for one another and uh, committed to love the lost. Father, please use us, we pray. Would we shine like stars? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, I'd like you to imagine just for a moment that we are the church in Philippi. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Philippi. Get that in your heads, okay? You were there when Paul first came to Philippi to preach the good news about Jesus Christ. You remember it vividly. And you couldn't believe this good news. And you came to believe in it, that Jesus is your Lord. You remember it vividly. But you also remember the riots which followed. And the opposition that you faced as a Christian. Paul has now gone. He's, he's left us. He's disappeared off elsewhere. And we've just got a letter from him. And it seems as if he's now in prison. And we're still here. We're, we're here in Philippi. And, and Philippi's not changed. It's, it's still a really hard place to be a Christian. And now we as a church, we're, we're kind of beginning to wonder whether we should carry on partnering with Paul in this costly way. Being a Christian is, is proven not to be just dangerous, but also such hard work. The city ignores our message. Sharing it with our friends and our colleagues, it, it seemed like it was hitting a brick wall. Um, even our, our, our kids are laughed at, they're, they're sidelined, hated. It's hard. And in fact, even church, even the church we've been gathered into, even that's not quite what we expected it to be. People are perhaps different to us. It's often not that encouraging. There are disagreements, there, there are quarrels, there, there's grumbling from the 10%. You feel like they're doing 90% of the work. And to be honest, you're tempted to pack it in. And given the dangers, you just want to keep your head down and look after number one. Imagine that you're members of this church in Philippi. And it's not that hard, is it? Because <laughs> very often their issues are very much our issues. The question is, what's going to keep us going? What is going to motivate us to not give up serving God's church? To not give up witnessing the gospel? To not give up partnering in love with one another here? And at this point, I could enlist various different techniques to try and us up to work a bit harder. I, I could sort of use the carrot and stick approach. I could say, if you don't work hard, God doesn't like you and you're not going to heaven. That would be pastorally disastrous. It would also be completely wrong. So we're not going to do that. We're going to shelve that idea. But perhaps the, the pendulum might swing in the opposite direction. I could say, oh, no, we're saved by grace. And so we might therefore think there's nothing for us to do. We can just um, sit back and relax. We can let go and let God. We don't have to wrestle. We can just nestle. <laughs> Maybe we'd be tempted to swing that far all the way across. Now, we can't use the carrot and stick approach. We, we can't use this sort of pious passivity. That's not right either question is, what will motivate us to keep going in gospel partnership, even though we'll suffer because of it? That's what we're asking. And in our, our passage, you'll see in your handout, we have uh, three commands from Paul, three instructions, each with uh, three motivations. We are to keep working because God works in us, stop moaning because God works through us, and to keep rejoicing because God's workers encourage us. But firstly, just this first point, keep working. Because God works in us. Look down with me at verse 12 in your Bibles, please. 
Paul writes this. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. I love how affectionate Paul is to the church here in Philippi. A friend of mine has just come back from a, a conference with all the clergy in his diocese. And he told me just how all of them, nearly to a man, just moaning about their congregations, how frustrated they are, almost as if they don't really like their congregations. My friend had to say, oh, I actually quite like mine. He said, it felt like a bit of an odd one out. Well, well clearly Paul loves his congregation. It, this letter is not an angry diatribe to a lazy church. Come on, everyone, pull your socks up. No, here is a loving, warm encouragement to a church who are already going really well. He wants them to keep working out their salvation. Now, just so we're, we're all on the same page, let, let me explain what those words mean, work out your salvation. He's not addressing the Philippians here as individuals, saying, you, John, you need to work for your salvation, otherwise you're not saved. He's not saying that. Instead, he's addressing the congregation as an entire church, corporately. And he's saying, he's calling them, if you like, to work hard in response to their salvation, in response to that amazing hymn which they just sung from verses 5 to 11. Now, I don't know about you, but, but the word work is not the word you want to hear on a Sunday night, is it? It's not, it's not really what we came here to think about. And yet, this is the word which Paul uses, work. And it is a very strong word. It means to work to a sweat. To, to work, to labor and, and, until you have calluses on your hands and blood coming through. It's to labor to the point of exhaustion. It's that sort of word. I was quite excited recently because I managed to pick up one of the new five pound notes, the polymer ones. Have you got one of these yet? Yeah. Very excited. Yeah. yeah. I, it's, found, it's waterproof, which is good news because I often end up washing my fibers in the wash. So this is a... They shrink if you dry them. So don't put it in the tumble dryer, everyone. We've learned something tonight. <laughs> Thank you, Mary, for that word of encouragement. But uh, the thing which struck me about uh, the, the new five-pound note is, is Winston Churchill on the back. And there's this fantastic quote. And uh, you can go and look at it later. It's from his very first speech in the House of Commons. He's just become prime minister. We're on the eve of war. And this is what he says. On the eve of one of the greatest battles in history, I say this to the House... I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, sweat, and tears. See, Winston, he wants to be real, doesn't he, with the country, about the challenge which is ahead of them. And Paul wants to be real with us. Friends, if we want the gospel to go out in Hampstead amongst our friends, if we want to be a church united in love for one another, it will be very hard work. Now, I know upon hearing this, most of us will probably be put off, I and mean, we've had a hard, enough hard work for this week. We're probably depressed about having to go back to work this week. But notice how even though we work, verse 13, God hasn't finished working. Paul writes, it is for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. There was once a minister in America who was rather frustrated by his 
unenthusiastic congregation. No matter how much he, he banged the pulpit and shouted at them, they just didn't want to serve. They didn't really want to love one another. They sort of came in at the beginning and then left straight afterwards. He didn't know what to do. He was in despair. So to blast some steam, he, he went to the circus where he learnt a valuable lesson from a, from a clown. There was a, one little clown. He took his daughter. It wasn't just him on the front row. He, took, he brought his family along. And uh, there was one little clown with a rather flamboyant hat. And uh, the clown had this routine where he'd run around the ring. And then he, before, before a very beautiful woman, he would, he would take a bow. And his flamboyant hat would fall off. Upon which, a large elephant came along and sat on his hat. Um, much to the... Um, well, he wasn't happy about that at all. So the clown, he, he sort of started gesturing wildly to the elephant to try and sort of move him off the hat. The elephant just looked at him, nonplussed. Th then he started shouting and whooping to try and sort of get the elephant up and off, but nothing. Then he uh, started uh, trying to lift the elephant off the ground, but, but again, to no avail. Eventually, he took a big run-up and, and, and tried to kick the elephant as hard as he could in the bottom, but again, the elephant just looked at him and did nothing. Eventually, this clown was just utterly depressed. He, he, he grabbed a bag of peanuts from someone in the crowd, sat down in the corner, and forlornly just started eating the peanuts. At which point, the elephant sort of noticed and got up off the hat, wandered over, and started eating the peanuts along with the clown. The very valuable life lesson which this guy learned was this. Very often, the reason we don't have much enthusiasm for service it's not because we don't know what we're supposed to do. It's simply that we often just don't have the desire to do it. Or maybe we, we do have the desire, but there are other desires which come in and, if you like, trump those desires. See, a bit like the elephant, we need to be moved. We need our, our desires to be changed. You know, no matter how much I bang the pulpit, um, no matter how many times your small group leader texts you, are you coming this week? It's all for nothing unless God works in us to move our wills, to move our desires, so that we actually want to act according to his good purpose. Well, how does, how does God do that work in amongst us? Well, just look again at the very beginning of verse 12. It begins with the word, therefore. And I was always taught when I was a boy... When, the word is there, when you see the word therefore, you've got to ask what it is there for. And it's clearly a linking back to the previous, the previous passage, this amazing Christ hymn. We saw, we had it in our reading earlier, how Christ, being in very nature God, he didn't consider that position of glory something to be exploited, but rather he entered our world, he, he, he became nothing, he took on the form of a servant. And so our God sweat blood. His hands were pierced and he became obedient to the point of death. Jesus worked and obeyed for our salvation. So Paul says, therefore, my dear friends, continue to work and obey in response to that great salvation. If you like, we work because Christ first worked in us. And we keep working because God continues to work in us. So keep working. But the second instruction is this. It's rather blunt, isn't it? Stop moaning. Stop moaning because God works through us. Look down to verse 14. Paul writes, Do everything without complaining or arguing 
so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. When life is... um, when life's hard, it's sort of human nature, is it, to try to share your woes with others. We want to moan. We like a good moan, don't we? We like to, to grumble. I think there's something cathartic about unloading your concerns on someone else. It's quite natural, quite normal. And I think it's important as Christians, we need to be honest with one another, don't we, about how, how things are going in our lives. But there is a danger that we just continually complain and grumble. And so we're no different to our friends who, who don't believe in Jesus. Um, the children downstairs in our Sunday clubs in the morning congregation, they've, they've just finished looking at the book of Exodus. And, and you might not recognize that a lot of Paul's language in these verses here, they, they, they're ripped straight out of that book. You, you know the story, I'm sure. Um, God's people, Israel, he calls them his children. And uh, he, he wants his children to be witnesses to the whole world. That's his purpose for Israel, to witness But the problem is that they're being held captive by Pharaoh. So what does God do? With an outstretched arm, he rescues them out. With this amazing rescue, the ten plagues, etc., etc., the Red Sea crossing. Amazing rescue. And then he promises them a land. A land to put them in. It's an amazing place. A rescue behind them and an amazing place ahead of them. But in the midst of it, they're in the desert. And in the desert, they're free to serve God. But what do they do? They moan. And they grumble. It's a bit hot. I don't like sand. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. We don't like Moses and Miriam and Aaron and these other leaders you've given us. They just moan and they grumble. And so God calls them, he calls Israel a crooked and depraved generation because the, the, the witness that which they were supposed to be to the nations, well, they're not so great. Paul chooses these words from Exodus carefully because he wants us to learn from their mistakes. See, just like Israel, our, our present circumstances might be really difficult. And I know, I know for some of you, life is incredibly hard at the moment. But friends, remember, behind us is the most amazing rescue. And ahead of us is the most incredible place. So as we've been hearing throughout this letter to the Philippians, we can rejoice, not because of our present experience in the desert, if you like, but because of the cross behind us and the land ahead of us. So the next time someone asks you how you're doing, whether that's at the back of church or or maybe tomorrow morning, let's be real with them about our circumstances. It does no good, does it, to sort of pretend everything's fine and sort of put on a wet smile. Let's be real. But instead of just moaning about your situation, why not also talk about how it is that Christ is helping you endure through that difficult situation? Now, the very first week I, I, I was here at St. John's serving here, I, I visited one of us in, in hospital. And, and this person was, uh, I'm not exaggerating, in agony. Their eyes were, were fully dilated. I think they were on the strongest opiates possible uh, because of their condition. And the doctors had to start weaning them off um, the drug because it, it was too strong. And, and this person was, was shaking. The pain was just unimaginable. And uh, I was there sort of first week. And, and what do you say to someone? I've never met them before. So I asked them, you know, how, how are you coping? And I'll never forget what they said. 
They looked me in the eyes and they said, Andy, I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed. I don't deserve all these blessings. And in my condition, it keeps me humble. It helps me give thanks for all the little things, the things we take for granted, a smile, a friendly face, a beautiful day. Andy, I'm so blessed. They are in agony. What a wonderful witness to the nurses, to, to, the, to their friends, to their families. You see, as Christians, as we respond joyfully in the midst of miserable situations, we shine like stars. We really do. You might know Paul's day. They, they didn't have maps or, or GPS or anything like that. The only way of knowing where they were going is to look at the night sky. That, that, that was the only guide, really. And in verse 16, Paul says, we, are sh- we shine like stars. Uh, we're the only light in our midst of the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. See, God works through us in order to guide people to him. I found anecdotally, most, most people who come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, that they do so not just because they've heard this really hard-hitting, powerful message or a sermon or something like that. Often what triggers their interest is just how distinctive the Christian community is. Just how different we relate to one another. The way we unite, even though we're so different. The way we care for one another. The way we pray for one another. The way we suffer. We shine like stars. But friends, we are not the light ourselves. We are not the light. No, we point to Jesus. That's what Paul says in verse 16. We shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. So we as a church family, I I think we are wonderfully distinctive. To everyone who comes along here, joins on a Sunday, I hope they see something different about us. But we ourselves are not the good news. Jesus is. Our lives of light, they draw us, they draw people to the source of life. I wonder how, how quickly we, we forget that the message that we have is exactly what our friends and neighbours need. People fear death. They fear judgment. They fear eternal darkness and living a life of just utter pointlessness. They fear that. And we have good news. We have light. And friends, this is the, this is the challenge, that, that we commend this message to them. Not just by the way we live, as we, we don't moan about our present circumstances, but as we point people to what lies ahead, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's our third point tonight. We must keep rejoicing. Keep rejoicing, because God's workers encourage us. Let's pick it up again in verse 16. Uh, follow with me. Paul closes. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I know a number of us have been on runs this week. I think, Liz, didn't you do an um, Ironman run or something like that? A Bear Grylls challenge? Bear Grylls, very ch- and, and Mary did a run uh, today as well. How, how far did you run, Mary? 13 miles. There you go. And, and I, know, I, know, I know some of us, we like, to, we like to run marathons, don't we? And you should probably know, most of us look at you and think you're crazy. Most of us are wondering, why on, why on earth would you put yourself through that? 
um, the, the lactic acid, the chafing, the, 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 <laughs> the blisters, the, the sprained ankle. Didn't both of you sprain your ankles? There you go. Most of us, we're looking at you and thinking, you're crazy. Why are you doing this? Why are you running that race? And, and we, we may well look at Paul and ask the exact same question. He says he's running this race. And we might ask, why on earth are you bothering? I mean, is he some sort of masochist? Like Mary and, and Liz, who, who just like pain. Well, it's important we get this. Paul isn't rejoicing in his suffering. Yes, I love suffering. This is great. No, he's rejoicing that his suffering has a purpose. It's producing something. It's just as a, a marathon runner, that they, they fix their eyes on the finish line, don't they? Well, so Paul has his eyes fixed on the day of Christ. And, and what keeps him going is knowing that that race isn't for nothing. In chapter 4, at the very beginning, he says to the Philippians that they are his, his victor's crown, the, la- the laurel wreath, if you like, uh, which he would get upon passing the rope. He's the ones he's running, they're the ones he's running for, the one he's sacrificing himself for. So you can imagine as Paul's running this race, and it's a hard race, he runs with a smile. Because he knows his ministry is having an effect on this church. But it's not just a one-way thing. Notice the Philippians are are suffering for Paul as well. Uh, Paul says that they're sacrificing for him. So they're in the midst of poverty, remember that. And yet they're still sending him aid. Um, They're they're a small church and yet they're still sending him workers. Epaphroditus will meet next week. And Paul, Paul, think about how, how the Philippians are serving him. He's more than happy to pour himself out for them. He calls himself a drink offering, which which is poured out on top of their already costly sacrifice. If you like, he's an addendum to what they've already done. When uh, Hannah and I uh, lived in Dagenham in Essex, I I remember us complaining fairly early on in in, in our time there to our minister. We, We said to him, look, we're leaving church every single week, completely wiped. Leaving completely drained. Loving these people is difficult. Teaching these children is exhausting. Having people around for meals and, and then going on to the evening service is really tiring. And our, our minister was, was really sweet with us. He, he listened for a long time. But eventually he said, I'm really glad. It sounds as if you're doing the right thing. And then he started saying how um, the historic reason we have in the UK, two days off, a, a two-day weekend... It's so that we use Saturday to relax, to recuperate, to, to spend time with our family. In order that on Sunday we can pour ourselves out in service to the church family. That's the historic reason for the two-day weekend. It, Sunday is not our day, he would say. It is the Lord's day. So just as Christ emptied himself out for us, so we can pour ourselves out for each other. So the question is, What will keep us rejoicing as we do that? What will keep us running with a smile? What will stop us from getting um, bitter and resentful and angry about what we're doing? Well, like Paul, let's keep looking to those who are running with us, running alongside us. And friends, you don't have to look far to see examples of that. Someone arrived very early tonight to cook for you. That's wonderful. (laughs) The band arrived around 4.30 to practice in order that we might sing these fantastic songs together and they've done a cracking job tonight Um, your small group leaders give up time to write Bible studies for you and pray for you each and every week 
And I'll so encourage the other week. I, had, uh, I, I sort of helped uh, in the men's breakfast on Saturday morning, and one guy rocked up, and he looked like death. And he's, and uh, and I said, mate, you look, you don't look great. He said, yeah, I've had a rough week. Um, and I said, well, thank you so much for coming. And he said, actually, I really want to be here. And that showed me that he loves us more than he loves himself. And that was so wonderfully encouraging to me. And you might appear in your small group in the same situation who are exhausted and yet they come because they want to love you. They're running alongside you. They're, they're pouring themselves out. But you know what? They've got, a, they've got a smile on their faces. Why? Why are they doing this? Because they've seen the rescue that is behind them. And they've seen the land that is ahead of them. And instead of grumbling, instead of groaning, instead of moaning about all the things which are going wrong, they're rejoicing in ministry. And the thing about the thing about moaning is that it is infectious, isn't it? Moaning is incredibly infectious. When, when someone starts moaning, this is what we want to do. We want to start moaning with them. If I say to you, oh, I've had a hard week, you know what you'll do? You'll go, oh, I've had a hard week too. You know, we start then sort of, uh, sort of passively competing to see who's had the, sort of the, the hardest week. That's what we do. We, we moan. And, and moaning is damaging because it draws our sights off our rescue behind us and, and the land ahead of us. And it, and it draws our attention just to the difficult present. But friends, rejoicing is just as infectious. So friends, count your blessings. Talk about the gospel with one another. Talk about what it is which is keeping you going. And it will help you. And it will help us lift our eyes up off the present and onto our Savior, the one who ran before us, the one who poured himself out in service to us on the cross. Friends, this is the call. We work. And let's not fool ourselves, it's going to be hard, but Christ works for us, and Christ works in us. So let's give him our praise, and let's give him our service. Let's bow, let's pray. Father, we've seen tonight that the way we respond to difficulty will either encourage or discourage our fellow brothers, it will either attract or it will repel folk who are looking in on the Christian faith. So our, pray, our prayer, Father, is that you might make us a joyful people. Not just joyful when we sing, although we do pray for that, but joyful in the whole of our lives. That we might shine like stars in the midst of a dark, crooked and depraved generation. We ask, Father, that you would use us to draw people to yourself, to guide people to Jesus. And we ask that in his name. Amen.